All right, well, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 13. And this morning, we're moving on and talking about the character of love. Last week, we talked about the supremacy of love. Love must be primary in the Christian life. It's more valuable than abilities and accomplishments and spiritual gifts. And Paul made that point in the first three verses. Without, without love, all that's worthless, he said. A very powerful language he uses. And now he begins to give us uh, a definition of love that surpasses any other that I'm aware of in the world. Um, he gives a description of love and how love, well, what it looks like when it's lived out. And if I were to ask you to put your art skills to the test this morning, and I said, I want you to draw or paint, or if crayons are your speed, I want you to make me a picture of love. Just draw me a picture. What's love? And so maybe in your mind, as soon as I say that, you begin to think of a scene or an image. Maybe some would draw a picture of two people getting married, a picture of a wedding or something like that. Maybe you would paint the picture of a family together, enjoying one another, and uh, something down that line. Um, maybe you would draw a person helping another person do something. You know, we can think of, of all kinds of different ways that we would draw what love looks like. I mean, all of us might do it just a little bit different. And when we come to 1 Corinthians 13 this morning and we look at verses 4 through 7, we see Paul draw his picture of what love is. This is him giving us a portrait of love. And what I really like about where this comes in the book of Corinthians, and at this point in Corinthians, we have explored many issues that the church wrestled with. Division, idolatry, immorality, suing each other, a lot of contention, a lot of envy, a lot of pride, a very dysfunctional church, right? In Corinthians, a very dysfunctional church. And it's in the context of this dysfunctional church that Paul paints this beautiful portrait of what love is. And I just find that almost ironic that the Lord gives us the definition of love in this context. Because I think because that even starts to talk about what love is. Love exists amongst the unlovable. That's where love is needed. And, and that's what Paul's point is in 1 Corinthians 13. And all their issues, they needed love the most because that's what they were lacking the most. And it would, have, it would have brought a whole different attitude and character to everything they were doing. It would have cleared up so many of the relationship issues they were suffering. That's how important love is. And so he gives us this portrait here in the context of a dysfunctional church to show that even in a dysfunctional church, the individual can still make the choice to love everybody else. You don't wait for people to love you. You love now. And I think that's his point to the Corinthians. You can love right now. You can love in the midst of this mess. And so we're going to go through these four verses, and we're going to talk about each of these pieces of what love is. And I've given you an outline this morning, 
And I hope you're not overwhelmed by it. It's a little bit more intense than usual. But we're going to go fairly quickly through these descriptions of love. And I just, they're all so good, I want you to have to write them all down. <laughs> because every one of them is so special. And as we do that, we'll bring up some different portraits of love, examples for us even today of how people have chosen to love over the alternative and how God has used that. And we're going to break it down into four subgroups, the virtues of love, the actions of love, the delights of love, and the endurance of love. And we'll follow through the passages that way. And another mistake I made is that on your outline, the last two points, the verse is wrong. I, I skipped a verse for some reason. It's supposed to be four, five, six, and seven. And it may be wrong on the screen as well, but it's four, five, six, and seven, just so you're aware of that. Let's begin and read verse 4. Paul says, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Again, he just throws in so many action words that describe love. And he starts with this idea of love is long-suffering. I made the joke a little bit earlier for those who have been well into their marriage, years and years into it. But yes, again, love suffers long. And the word here in the Greek means to be long-tempered. You know, we know what short temper looks like, right? Somebody can be set off easy, a short temper. But what he's talking about, no, love is long-tempered. It takes, it takes love a long time to get there. Love bears with people's irritations and annoyances and all that kind of stuff that we might pick on. It takes a long time to become angry. And this word, like all the others in our context, these are talking about people-to-people relationships. Okay, we're talking about people-to-people relationships. He's talking about how the Corinthians were treating each other and what they needed in their life. They needed long-suffering. Love patiently bears with the words and actions of others. This is in opposition to becoming angry or discouraged because of what others say or do. It's long-suffering. It can put up with a whole lot. That's what love can do. Again, the Corinthians were ready to sue each other, were ready to go to fight about every little issue at the drop of a hat. No, they needed to be long-suffering. And I can't help, um, any of these words that we read about this morning, you could easily say Jesus Christ is the greatest example of any of them. And we'll make that point a few times, and here we will. I don't know of any greater uh, example of the character of love, including long-suffering, than the Lord. Because I think of him when he went to the cross, and everything about the cross, for Jesus, it was all hate toward him. It was in a context of hate. The Jewish leaders were showing hate. Some of the Roman soldiers were showing hate. They beat him. They crowned him with thorns. They mocked him. They ridiculed him. The Jews demanded his crucifixion. He goes to the cross. And in a context of hate, and you could even say in a context of evil, Jesus Christ loved through that up until the nails going into his hands and beyond. And I think about that. He's getting nailed to a cross. And that was his mission and his purpose. But he was long-suffering through that. He didn't, didn't, you didn't get anger. You, you didn't get wrath. He actually said, when they were nailing him to the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them. 
they know not what they do. That's, that's long-suffering. That's suffering a long time. That, that, that could get into the mercy of God and all kinds of other areas. But, but Jesus Christ was long-suffering. Love is long-suffering. That's what Paul called the Corinthians and us, to suffer long with each other, to be willing to put up, you might say, with each other. Right after that, he says love is kind. Love is kind. And, and that has the idea of being willing to, to help or to assist, to reach out, to, to, to act in a benevolent manner to someone else. And I like that these two are paired together. Because it's like long-suffering is like, you know, love can kind of take a punch. But instead of retaliation, love reaches out still. It shows kindness. Love can absorb somebody else's attack and still want to reach out in kindness right after that. That's what love can do. The Greek word behind kind there actually means useful, to be useful. Love seeks to bless those around it. And again, the Corinthians, they needed that because they were so caught up in selfishness and being number one and being the, the, the alpha, or whatever you want to say, that they were forgetting to just simply help and assist and bless each other. They were lacking love in that way. And that really just speaks to all of us who, who trust the Lord. You know, we're, what is our response to when someone's in, a, in trouble, in a trial, uh, someone's struggling or suffering? You know, are we that hand that reaches out to assist? That's, that's the idea of kindness here. That's what love does. It reaches out in compassion toward those in need. So love is kind. Love is long-suffering. Love is kind. And notice what he says next. He says, love does not envy. Love does not envy. And the, the word for envy means to boil, to be boiling over. That's the idea of it. And it's used a lot of times of zeal or jealousy. And it seems like what he's talking about here is someone's zealous to have what somebody else has. They're jealous of the individual. They're coveting what somebody else has. They they. Instead of looking what God has given them, they're looking at what somebody else has, and in their perspective and attitude, all they can see is what I don't have. And so I make the point here that love is content. Love is content. That's the answer for envy, is contentment. Love is content because love is resting in what God has done. And therefore, in our interaction with people... I'm not after what you have. I don't, want, I don't want what you have. That's not what it's about. Love puts the focus on the other. I'm here to serve you. So it's not envious in that way. It's not wishing to have what somebody else has. And, you know, a lot of times that can creep into our thoughts in different forms. I mean, you may at times really, boy, I really wish I could have a truck like that or something like that. But at some point you might even think, boy, I, I really wish I could do what that person does. I really wish I could be like that person. And that's all dangerous ground because it's all taking the focus off what God's doing in your life. And you start to want to, uh, you start to see God as inadequate for you, as I guess we could say it that way. No, instead, love is going to rest in what the Lord has provided, realizing that God has provi- provided our needs so that we can be free to serve him in meeting the needs of others. 
Love is always centered on others. And he says two things at the end of verse 4. Does not parade itself and is not puffed up. And we'll take those two together and make this point that love is humble. Love is humble. Long-suffering, kind, content, and humble. By humble, we mean we put others first. That's basically what we mean with humility. We put others first. It's not about self-exaltation. To parade oneself means to vaunt oneself. It means to be a boaster or a show-off. And it's, it's like doing things and saying things to try to get people's attention on you and really to kind of create in the other person an envy towards you. If envy is I want what you have, this parading itself, I'm trying to make you want what I have and who I am. I'm putting myself out there and trying to make myself look good. Now, we know the Corinthians were doing that. They were doing it with their spiritual gifts. That's the context we're in in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. They loved their tongues, right? They loved speaking in tongues. They thought that was awesome and that that showed just how godly and spiritual they really were and how much God you know, thought of them because they could speak in tongues. And Paul says, that's worthless without love. You need love. Love's what you need. But they, would, they were parading themselves in so many ways, putting themselves over and number one against other people. And he says they were, they're not to be puffed up. Love does not puff up. And that means to be inflated, like an inflated ego. You know, and some people say it's like you're a windbag. <laughs> a windbag, that's what it kind of means in the Greek, to be inflated as in your ego. And he used this term earlier of the Corinthians back in uh, chapter uh, 5. And uh, let me just turn over there real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And he said to them there, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. And it's interesting in that context, he was instructing them how to deal with a person who had walked down a life of sin within their fellowship. And he says, You're, you have an inflated ego over this. this you, ought to be, you ought to be in sorrow because this has happened in the midst of your church. And you ought to be dealing with this and confronting sin because of the damaging nature of sin in people's lives. But he says they were instead, they were puffed up. They were filled with pride. See, they thought, they thought grace was basically a license to do whatever I want. And they thought they were actually celebrating God's grace by doing whatever they thought, doing whatever they wanted to do, whatever came natural, you might say. And he says, no, that's pride. That's arrogance. That's puffed up. And that's not the heart that God's looking for. God's looking for humility. The love is never puffed up. It's never boastful about self. It instead boasts in the Lord. And we can even be puffed up about good things, right? You, you can be puffed up. You can have a sense of arrogance and pride because of what you know about Scripture. He told him earlier, he says, knowledge puffs up. Chapter 8, verse 1. But love builds up. Love edifies. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. That's a theme he brings back to the forefront here. And so, again, he's describing the Christian who loves others. Long-suffering, kind, content, humble. And, he, and that all comes out in love because it always is about putting the other person first, no matter 
what it takes. And you might say, I want to give you a living portrait of, of love and an example. There was a man named Robertson McQuilkin. Robertson McQuilkin. And some may recognize that name. But he was the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary. And in 1990, he suddenly and unexpectedly retired from his role. And the reason he did so was that his wife, Muriel, had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and he needed to become her full-time caregiver in the home. And so he left that prestigious role of president to be her caregiver. He kept his vows to love her through sickness and in health. This is a man that, you know, his role in his wife's life went from companion to caregiver. And he had to watch her slowly diminish over the years and become less and less capable. And he basically put all other aspects of his life on hold to love her in a sacrificial way. Just the kind of things we're talking about right here in 1 Corinthians 13. He suffered long through that. He showed kindness with that. He showed contentment in his new role. He stayed humble. And he stayed at her side and cared for her as the years went on. These people, they had been life partners. They had had six children together. They had been missionaries even for 12 years. And yet when that disease came in, it all it changed the whole dynamic of the relationship. But he stayed right there with her. And he lived out what true and selfless love looks like. He put her first in his life. He put his, her needs over his desires. And you can even read about it. He wrote a book called A Promise Kept. It's not a very big book, but it's one I can recommend. And it tells, it tells his story. Now, Muriel went home to be with the Lord in 2003. Robertson did remarry later. But he kept his word to Muriel. And he lived out that love. And he himself, I believe, went home in 2016. But that's, that's love, right? That, that's what love is. That, that's a, that example is one, you can't just say it. You have to show it. There's no other way through that situation. He had to live it out, and that's what he did. We move on to verse 5, and we see another subset of what love is. And I've called this the actions of love. And we have a few more points here. He says about love that it does not behave rudely. It doesn't act unsightly. It doesn't act in an unbecoming manner. In other words, love acts rightly. When love is in a situation, because it's thinking of others, it considers how it's going to behave in a situation. It's going to consider... Uh, the other person. And again, the Corinthians, unfortunately, provide for us an example of what Paul was speaking of because in their partaking of the Lord's Supper, exactly what they did was behave rudely. (laughs) Because when they came together to partake of the Lord's Supper that you go back and read about in chapter 11, some of them were getting drunk, they were going first and hogging the food, and others didn't even have anything, and this is how they treated each other, and and they called themselves Christians. 
And Paul is saying, that's not love. That's not love doesn't treat other people rudely. Love always looks at the other person, and how can I be a blessing to that person? And it's easy to pick on the Corinthians because, again, they give us so many examples. But we all have to check our hearts at time, look at our motivations and the things we do, because selfishness can creep up very fast. Sometimes we seem to give ourselves permission more in our family than our public life, you might say, to, to let that selfish nature come out. And to, you know, all the things we've talked about so far that love is, if, probably if you're going to uh, uh, lose those things in a moment, I would wager it probably was at home with your family. <laughs> because we tend to give ourselves permission to treat our family less sometimes than we do other people. And we don't, we don't want to make that choice to love them sometimes as much as we do people in church or out in the public or at work or whatever. Um, maybe that doesn't describe you, but it, but it certainly can happen. And so this, this just asks us again, how are, we, how are we walking? How are we behaving? What are our actions? Do we do, we do the things that are right before the Lord, that are, that are good in his sight, that bless others? Or are we letting the flesh come up? Next, we see that love serves others. And I take that from what Paul says. He says, love does not seek its own. Love does not seek its own. In other words, love seeks the things of others. Love seeks what I can do for you. How can I serve you? How can I bless you? It reminds me of, a, of, of Timothy, actually, in the book of Philippians, something that Paul said of Timothy. He said of Timothy, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, 20 and 21. Timothy shows what this looks like. Timothy is a guy who was willing to put other things on hold, plans, things he wanted to accomplish because some people were in need and he wanted to be part of God's meeting their needs. So Timothy was willing to go, and he was seeking, seeking others in that sense, seeking what he could, how he could bless them. That's another heart check for us because it's easy for us to become comfortable and just want to do what feels good to us instead of seeking what do other people need. How can I, how can I reach out? How can I bless? Love serves others. He says love is not provoked provoked and that really has the idea of acting in anger it's like an outburst an emotional outburst i'm just going to unleash on you i've had enough and it has the idea of irritability and lashing out at people no instead love is under control love is under control remember galatians 5 22 and 23 and that one self-control you know, similar idea here. Love, love is under control. And this goes back to love is long-suffering. Love absorbs a lot of attack and stuff. Because it, it, it's got the, the benefit of the other person in mind. Now the flesh is always ready for the outburst. I'll guarantee it. <laughs> I can tell you my flesh is always ready for the outburst. But the Spirit would want to do a different work in my life. The Spirit wants me to be under control. His control and letting love win the day. And Paul, you could even look at Paul in that idea, because Paul, as he writes this epistle, this epistle is evidence 
of his love for them because he's got other stuff to do. There's other churches to think about. Other people need help. And, and, and look at the things he has to write to them about. Like, don't you guys get this? And I really have to tell you how to partake the Lord's Supper again? Do I really have to sit down here and spell out idolatry again? But he bared with them in love. And he still believed God was going to work in their lives. And he didn't quit on them or give up. And we'll, that's going to come up in our passage in a little bit. But he stayed under control with them. Even when they were diminishing his ministry, they were doubting his apostleship. And, and why should we listen to you? He didn't take that all personal. He still decided to minister to him. He takes the time to write this epistle and, 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 and toil with them, toil alongside them. The last thing he says in verse 5 is, thinks no evil. Thinks no evil. And in the Greek, the idea is, keeps no record of evil or wrongdoings. Keeps no record of other people's wrongdoings. That's love. In other words, love forgives and moves on. Love forgives and moves on. Love doesn't keep a notebook on people. Love doesn't keep a file on people. What they've done, how they've crossed you. Love forgives and moves on. This has immense application to our life. Love does not explode on people with the list of grievances. Again, it doesn't keep a record like that. Instead, when things come up in a loving relationship, people work through problems with patience and kindness toward reconciliation. Talk about it, sure. Meet with the person privately, sure. But these guys were keeping tallies. They were keeping score to use against each other. No, that's not love. Love forgives and moves on. Another living portrait of love is the man Louis Zamperini. This may be another individual you've heard about. Louis Zamperini was he, he I don't know when he was born but he was an Olympian I believe and uh, it was in 1939 anyway he was a runner and then in World War II broke out and he became a soldier he was a United States citizen of Italian descent if I think but anyways his name would say but he 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 became a soldier became part of uh, well he was stationed on airplane well flew airplanes or part of a plane crew but anyway in his journey <laughs> you. If you read about his life story, it's just, it's, it's just it's, it's amazing, all the different things that happened to him, even during the war, because he was part of a, a, a crew, and I'm forgetting the name of the plane that he was on, but anyway, during World War II, the plane went down in the ocean, he survived, was on a raft, had to beat sharks away, Japanese p- p- planes are shooting at him in the water, he eventually, they get captured, by the Japanese. He ends up spending over two years in a POW camp and just being tormented and horrifically treated. And there was a certain individual in his life that became sort of the manifestations of his nightmares and all the evil he suffered. And it was a guard in the POW camp that they called the bird. And the guy just beat him and mistreated him and tried to just shame them and rob them of their human dignity any way he could. And he was just a constant demon in his life. And he went under that for over two years. But World War II ended with the atomic bombs. And Zamperini was set free right after that. 
And he came home, and because of the war and the toll it took his body, he was not able to resume his Olympian dreams. And because of the bitterness and the pain he had suffered, he turned to alcoholism, and he just became an angry drunk for a while. And his wife tried to help him, and others tried to help him, but he was really bitter with all the things that he'd suffered. But a young preacher came nearby, a preacher by the name of Billy Graham. <laughs> And in 1949, this Louis Zamperini attended a Billy Graham crusade. Maybe they were calling them crusades. And he trusted the Lord as his Savior. And God began to do a work, on his, work in his heart. And in 1950, he had the opportunity to go back to Japan. And he took it. And he went because he, was, he went looking for that guard. He went looking for the bird. And you might wonder, what was he looking for him for? Well, Zamperini had experienced forgiveness, and he forgave that individual. Now, there's a book called Unbroken, which is the story of Louis Zamperini, and it was written by a woman named Laura Hillenbrand. And she wrote of Zamperini when she first met him. He was infectiously cheerful, speaking of his captor's cruelty without a trace of bitterness. I asked, how could he speak so easily of such vicious men? His answer was simple. I've forgiven them. He went looking for the bird because he wanted to try to lead him to Christ. And he got there, and you know what he found out? That individual had committed suicide, which you could kind of understand what the kinds of things he had done. And Zamperini said that he didn't feel relief. He felt compassion because he really wanted to see what maybe God could do in that guy's life. Now, I can just about guarantee you that none of us have suffered like Zamperini did. And yet he was able to, God's love in his heart was able to break free his heart to, to, to love and forgive others. That's what God's love does. It's poured out in our hearts so we can love others. We need not to keep a record of wrong. We can forgive. We can move on. We can be free in that way. Verse 6 tells us what love rejoices in the delights of love in verse 7 or excuse me verse 6 see I'm looking at my outline it's wrong (laughs) love does not rejoice in iniquity instead love rejoices in righteousness love rejoices in righteousness that's your point it does not rejoice in iniquity iniquity just means unrighteousness wrongdoing Sin and justice. The love doesn't get excited about that. Love doesn't want to be part of that because that stuff hurts people. It hurts the individual who does it and it hurts people around them. So love doesn't get excited when somebody's bragging about their immorality or something like that because love sees right through that and knows what the damage it's doing to the person's soul and it cares about the person's soul. Love is also not happy when an antagonist suffers. Again, we might have thought that Louis Zamperini might have been happy to hear that guy was gone, but that was far from the truth because love had changed his heart. He was sad he couldn't talk with him. Love is not happy when an antagonist suffers because love instead desires the salvation and edification of all people. Love wants to see people saved and know the Lord and be set free too. That's what love does. Love doesn't tweet out, he got what he got what he deserved. Love doesn't celebrate like that. 
Love rejoices in righteousness. Love gets excited when you see somebody do the right thing. Love gets excited when you see somebody come to know the Lord. Love gets excited and rejoices over those kinds of things. When believers around us treat each other with righteousness. Also in verse 7, he says, excuse me, verse 6, love rejoices in the truth. So love also delights in the truth. I think, again, this has to do with people-to-people issues. This is talking about when people deal truthfully with each other. People tell the truth. They're not trying to deceive and manipulate and take advantage of each other. Love doesn't do that kind of stuff. Love, again, wants to bless. Love loves the truth. (laughs) And it's interesting, Paul puts truth and love together in different places, like in Ephesians 4 and here and other places as well. But but love is always with the truth. The, 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 the truth must be spoken in love. Love without the truth can just become emotionalism with no substance. Truth without love can just become intellectualism with no care, no compassion. No, the truth is always meant to be communicated in love, and love always walks hand in hand with truth. And so it rejoices when people are honest, when they show that they're trustworthy, when they... When they there's no deception and those kinds of things. So that's, again, what love is. That's what it delights in. I think of another portrait of love, and this one now from Scripture, Luke chapter 15, the, the parable of the prodigal son. You remember that? A father had two sons, and the youngest one chose to take his inheritance up front, leave his father, leave his family, and go out and live it up in the world, right? He went out, he, he lived it up. He chose a life of unrighteousness. He, he chose a life devoid of, devoid of truth. We don't know what this individual was believing, but it wasn't the truth. And he became a prisoner of his own doing. He, be, he was put in his own shackles, his own bondage of living in sin. And he lost all that he had. He thought he had friends. Those friends vanished when he lost all his money, when he he lost it all to poor living and poor choices. And he came to a point of desperation in his life where he said to himself, he was eating with the pigs, if you remember. He'd come to where he's eating out of a trough. That's how he's surviving, from riches to rags. And he thought, it'd be better if I go back and at least work for my dad. That would be a better existence than what I have now. So he goes back. And when he goes back, what does he expect? He expects, I think he expects harshness. He expects to be put in his place. He goes back. And what does the father do? The father is running to meet him as soon as he sees him coming down the path. His father is running to meet him. His father is excited to see him. His father's got reconciliation and restoration on the mind. The father wants him to be back in the family. The father wants to bless him again. And so the the son comes back. We know the older son had some things to deal with as well because he didn't like to see his younger brother get treated so well after he made such poor choices. But what's love in that story? What's love in that story? Well, the, the love in that story is the love of the father. To see, in a sense, a sinner come to repentance, as it were. A person who decided, you know what? I do want righteousness and truth. I do want 
what my father was offering me. I want to go back. I want to live with him. I want to be in his fellowship. I want to be in his presence. And he goes back and he was received with open arms. He was loved. He was loved even though he, in a sense, was unlovable. See, again, love, love, let me just say this too. The love we're talking about here in the Greek, it's the word agape, and it's unconditional. It's the way God loves people. It's, it's why Christ died for the sins of the world. God loves us unconditionally. He wants every sinner to come to him. And that's, that's a picture of God the Father in that parable. A person comes to Christ, that is, he's running down the road to grab him, to embrace him. That's the love God has for people. That's the kind of personal, intimate God. That, that's what he wants to be to us, that kind of father. And that further displays love to us. As we come to verse 7, we see here the endurance of love. He says, love bears all things. Love bears all things. And here the, the, the word for bear has the idea of a covering, to cover over. So love covers over others. Love wants to shield people. Love wants to be like a roof over people, to shelter the one in need, to sh- shelter and protect the one who's struggling. That's what love does. That's how it interacts with people. If there's an issue, it privately deals with the issues. It doesn't go around sharing grievances and faults and and letting it all go. No, instead, it, it loves the person too much to do that, and it comes and it wants to cover and shelter and help. He also says, believes all things. Believes all things. What this means is love believes the best about others. He's talking about relationships here. Love believes all things. It means that love does not doubt the words of others at face value. Instead, we take people at their word unless we have a good reason not to. You, you seek to believe the best about somebody, and, and, it, and you do that until you just can't. Unless you know something, then you have to deal with that issue. But it believes the best. It doesn't mean love is naive, but it believes the best. It seeks to believe the best about people until it can't. It also says in verse 7 that love hopes all things. Hope. Hope is the idea of positive expectation. So here it means that from person to person, what love does is it has a positive expectation about others that God is working in them, that God is doing something in their life. Love does not give up on others is the point. It doesn't give up on people. It doesn't have to. It believes the best. It, it, it love, really what we're talking about here, love, love remains optimistic about what people are going to do, what, what God's going to do in their life. It continues on believing that, that God's going to work and that these people, people may respond to it. And so it doesn't need to give up on people. It's optimistic. Again, not naive, but positive. And what, again, it helps to teach us that we're to be looking for the best in each other, not the worst. Look for the best in the people in the body around us. Instead of, a, instead of operating in a way in which we doubt one another, We're to operate in a way in which we look for one another to serve the Lord positively. The last thing in verse 7 is it says, endures all things. 
And endure here means to uphold, to uphold with one another. It has the idea of remaining under a load. And it means that a loving saint will remain under the load of another, another's burdens and not just dump the person with their problems. It stays. It stays with you. Love does not quit, is what he's saying here. It doesn't quit. And I think part of the idea is when you love somebody, they may slap you in the face for it. They may not, they may not want it. But love continues to love. And it doesn't give up. It believes God can work. It hopes for the best. It believes the best. It, believe, it believes God can work. And it stays there. It remains as much as we can. We remain in the person's life to love them as much as we can. As they will allow us. Love doesn't quit. It doesn't quit. And I think... And I got permission to share this, but it makes me think of, of Pastor Walgast and Mrs. Walgast's story with your mother and your brother-in-law, or your brother, your brother. And uh, just a few years ago at a point in a relationship where there was, hard, there was like no contact, we, mother was saying, don't want anything to do, hands up, don't want it, don't need it, don't care. And they just sought to honor her mother and to... And to Whatever, whatever little door opened to bless, to show love, whatever it came. And eventually they were called back down to Florida to help in a situation and had some really special times and, uh, and, and, and some sense of reconciliation and rebuilding a relationship. And I even think of, of Mrs. Walgast's brother, um, as Pastor Walgast was telling us, the more recent events, because they'd been down, they've been down there a few times now in the last couple of years of helping, of aiding, of just showing kindness, of, of taking care of a lot of the, the needs of her brother with, with property and real estate and different things going on. And, uh, and that's actually where Pastor Walgast is heading right now to go down there and help again for a couple of weeks as he lives in Florida. But what strikes me is how much that relationship has changed over the last couple of years because you have a couple of people who just said, I'm just going to love you. You do what you want with it, but I'm just going to love you. And if you don't want us down there, we're not going to barge in, but we're just going to be here loving. And then when the door was open, that love shined in it, in it, and I think it got their attention. And even now, as, as Pastor Walgast was sharing with Mrs. Walgast's brother, is when they're messaging each other, he even says in the message, I love you. Which when I hear that, when I hear what happened a couple years ago and I hear that, I was like, that's a complete change. It's a complete change. And, and now we don't, the thought is he hasn't trusted the Lord yet. And so we want to continue to pray for him. But there's been a change. And I just think of that situation because it's something I just heard again yesterday and was reminded of. Of again, we, we just, if, if you just continue to endure in love, right? Just like verse 7, bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, Endure, just remain, love how you can. You just never know how God's going to use you. Just loving somebody. You know, you think about that in contrast. We, we think the answer to everything is like the perfect argument, the perfect solution, the perfect formula. And no, it's just love. It's just be there when somebody needs help. It's just show what Christ means to you through your life. That's love. And so... We've been considering these different portraits of love, examples, and we started with the idea, 
what would you paint if I said, paint me a picture of love? And the reality is, every day we paint that picture in our lives. We show what we believe love is through how we live. We show the love in our life, or dare I say, the absence of it. We paint the picture for people. That's what Paul was trying to get across to the Corinthians. What picture are you painting to the world of who, of who the Father is, of who God the Son is, of what it means to you? They were bickering. They were, they were after prestige and reputation and all this. And he challenges them here and gives them exactly what love is. It's the very character and nature of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this passage, Lord. There's so much here. We could spend weeks just on these few verses, Lord, but we wanted to get just a snapshot of what love is as you define it and just the different ways it takes shape in our lives. And, and Lord, what it can do in our lives as we think of some of these stories like, like Robertson McQuilkin or Louis Zamperini or the story of the prodigal son or even mentioned the situation with the wall gas, just, just how love works in so many different ways to, to restore and rebuild relationships, to win people's hearts, and even in some cases to win people's hearts to you. So, Lord, we pray as we go forth today, we go forth with the desire to love, love those in our life, love our families, love our spouse, love our children, but beyond even love those we're around. Just show the world what your love's all about. So, Lord, that's our prayer, and we just give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.